0: This is like, you know, years later, this is post-college, you know, I'm out of treatment, I'm much more well-adjusted, I'm like actually a contributing member of human society, and then I reach out to my friends from high school that I've known for like a decade, and I'm like, hey, like, did you guys know that I was going through all that? And I thought that I was just so good at hiding it that they had no idea what I was experiencing, they are all like, oh yeah, we knew. We just never brought it up because it was awkward. And I was like, oh, my word, this is how people die.
1: Welcome to And Then Everything Changed, a podcast about the pivotal moments in life and decisions that define us. I'm your host, Ronit Plank. Today, my guest is Johnny Crowder. He's a 28-year-old suicide abuse survivor, TEDx speaker, touring musician, mental health and sobriety advocate, and the founder and CEO of Cope Notes, a text-based mental health platform that provides daily support to users in nearly 100 countries across the globe. Welcome, Johnny. Hey, thanks for having me. Thank you for being here. I know you are up to a whole bunch of things, and I'm so happy to get this chance to talk with you. Before we talk about Cope Notes and how you've seen it assist people. I'm curious about your story. And I know that you you must have talked about your story so many times now. How, how long have you been out as an advocate, I guess?
0: Well, I was actually very reluctant to share my story for a long time. Mm-hmm. So I was experiencing mental health um, struggles my entire life, but it wasn't until 2011 when I actually started opening up and getting involved with NAMI and starting to do some advocacy. So a lot of people are like, wow, you've been doing advocacy for 10 years. And I think like, yeah, but for 18 years, I wouldn't I wouldn't dare open my mouth about it, you know?
1: Hmm. And can you tell me what NAMI stands for?
0: Yes, it's the National Alliance on Mental Illness. Okay. Um, but there are lots of different like local chapters and affiliates. So if someone is listening and mm-hmm. they live in America, there's probably a chapter near you.
1: Okay. So it is an interesting thing because you're so, I mean, relatively speaking, you're young and, um, you have been doing this work for a while, but in your recollection of it, there was a time when you didn't think you would talk about it publicly. Uh, So can you take, are you laughing because I'm right? Or did I misphrase that? No,
0: you're exactly right. Like I, I am constantly stunned. Yeah. I think my young self would look at my (laughs) modern self and be like,
1: what the heck?
0: You're out there telling everybody what you're going through. Aren't you worried about what people are going to (laughs) say?
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know it is really interesting. And so I want to kind of dig into, you say that you've experienced, you've had these mental um, health, you know, concerns and issues for a long, long time. So can you take me back to your your first understanding or awareness that you weren't feeling okay?
0: Hmm. I... I'm wondering how generous I should be with with the phrase awareness, because I think I kind of, I knew, but I didn't know. Like I knew, but I was Mm. in denial kind of like, so before I was even in elementary school, I was self-harming, like as a toddler. Hmm. And I did not have an awareness of what that behavior meant or whether or not other kids were developing the same way. Like when you're, when you're a kid, you kind of just have a very limited scope of what exists. And mm-hmm. in elementary school, I just kind of figured, so for example, one of my um, diagnoses is schizophrenia and I would um, hallucinate. Mm-hmm. I would have auditory and visual hallucinations and I would just kind of figure that other kids were experiencing that as well. So I was kind of in a state of assuming that I was tracking with normal human development until probably middle school is where I started feeling myself really fraction off from the rest of the student population. And then in high school, um, I began treatment and I was like, oh, dang, I have been totally ignoring this for a long time.
1: Mm. Well, okay. So now I have so many questions and I will try to remember them. But the first I have is I, I didn't even know about, I'm a lot older than you. I'm like a generation or something older than you. I don't even know how we count those, but I'm (laughs) older than you. And like, what is a generation? But, um, I I didn't even know about self-harm when I was growing up. It was not talked about. I mean, we, I grew up in the time when, for example, um, anorexia, the only thing I knew about it officially was that Karen Carpenter had it and she was famous. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like there wasn't a big talk about this and self-harm wasn't on my radar whatsoever um, until I guess, gosh, I, I really almost think until I had kids. And so what I'm wondering about is it, how does a toddler relate to self-harm? And and do you do you know what you were trying to do back then? Because I would imagine that the the orientation to self-harm might be a little different for a kid in elementary school or teenager years. Like, what was a toddler, what was your thought process, do you think?
0: I have no clue. (laughs) Um, But I know that at the time I wasn't thinking, this is self-harm, this is destructive behavior, like I was a kid. Mm -hmm. So I can't really sort of time travel back to imagine what on earth I was thinking. But I do imagine that a big part of it had to do with the fact that I was growing up in an abusive environment. So you learn, I guess, if I tried to like analyze myself retroactively, I would think that maybe part of that behavior was rooted in the fact that I was being hurt by people that I trusted and then I f- must've figured that that pain was something that I was supposed to feel consistently or something. Mm-hmm. And maybe I was trying to continue playing that out. I'm not a hundred percent sure, but I, I know I can say one thing with a hundred percent certainty. There's no way that I had even a shred of awareness about what I was doing or whether or not it was healthy.
1: Yeah. In your family, are are there siblings?
0: Yeah, I have two brothers, and then I have a... Uh, so I grew up with two brothers, and then I have like a sister in air quotes. Kind of like I have an uncle who's not my uncle. I have a sister who's not my sister.
1: Yeah. Did all of you suffer abuse? It was
0: to varying degrees. Um, but I would say... You know, I would say that for myself and one of my brothers, it was definitely pretty pronounced. I'm not 100% certain if my other brother experienced it. Um, I wouldn't be surprised if he did.
1: Mm-hmm. And so this makes me also wonder about, of course, your parents. And it also makes me wonder about how much of what you endured— emotionally and mentally was brought on by this and how much might have been innate. Do you know of any kind of schizophrenia or depression in your family?
0: So I don't know a ton about my family history with mental health, but I do know that um, I am not the first person in my lineage to be diagnosed with a mental illness. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure what specific diagnoses have persisted in my family, um, but I know that I do have a family history of mental illness and I'm like 99.999% sure that um, depression definitely ran in the family. I'm not so sure about the um, like OCD and the bipolar and schizophrenia, but mm-hmm. I, I'm fairly confident that um, the more common diagnoses like anxiety and depression
1: mm-hmm. um,
0: are in my bloodline.
1: Okay. And so the coping mechanism that you turn to, you know, subconsciously or unconsciously as a toddler m- continued to evolve. And so you were self-harming in elementary school as well. And that is when I think you mentioned, you realized, oh, this is a little bit different from what other kids do.
0: Well, I, I think probably middle school was when, cause in elementary school, you're still like, your whole world is you. Like, mm-hmm. you're, I mean, at least for me, I don't remember being aware of like, you know, I thought all parents were like my parents. And mm-hmm. I thought that all thoughts were like my thoughts. And, you know, I didn't really have an understanding of other people having their own unique experiences. Yeah. And then I would say in middle school was when I started noticing that other people's behavior was very different from mine. I would think like, you know, how is that person touching that doorknob? Like, mm. don't they know that doorknobs are dirty and you're not supposed to touch doorknobs? And mm-hmm. I would start I I think I started asking those questions in probably a late elementary, early middle school, like, what do you mean? He's like going to hang out with his family? Like, isn't he scared of his family? You know, it Mm -hmm. was like really challenging my worldview.
1: And so did your symptoms increase or get worse at that point?
0: Oh, yes. (laughs) It got way, way worse in middle school Mm -hmm. for sure. And then high school, I was to the point where I couldn't complete like very basic tasks like taking a shower or making a sandwich. Hmm. Um, So that was when it became so debilitating that I I wasn't able to live my daily life.
1: What was happening for you in terms of teachers or any mentors or any kind of, was there anyone in school or friends, parents, or anyone who took an interest or reached out to you?
0: Well, um, I think my mom really started noticing that, uh, something was very severely unwell in me, not just like, Oh, he's a kid. He'll get over it. But definitely I think my mom started developing like genuine concern for my safety, Mm. um, in early high school and she was encouraging me to seek treatment. And I just absolutely would not consider it. Um, and then also I had a caregiver, Connie. Uh, she was like my, um, Babysitter from the day I was born, basically. Mm. She was, like, my unofficial grandma, mm. and um, she was always very understanding and very patient. So I think that Connie was kind of the, like, sage, like, I'll sit with you kind of person in it, and then my mom was the, oh, no, like, the wheels are falling off. I need to do something. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, but that's also surprising to me because, because and this is my own misunderstanding, you said that there was abuse in the home, and so I didn't even think that maybe your mom could be an ally.
0: Yeah, it was, I, I never talked too, too much about um, the details of my home situation, but I will say that there was definitely a change um, in my mom as she saw the severity of my illness worsen mm-hmm. and... Um looking back, I think a big reason I was resistant to her was because I didn't see us as being on the same team mm-hmm. for the last, you know, 15 years. So I was like, what the heck makes you think that I'm going to trust you now? Yeah. Um But looking back, I think she really was um, afraid. And I'll tell you, even... You know, you can be really really angry at somebody and then when fear comes into the mix it, it kind of disarms anger and it makes you go, "Whoa, wait a second. Mm-hmm. Like we need to reprioritize."
1: Yes. Yes, and and so you had Connie and your mom and then you had this idea that they should they wanted you to go get help and you were resisting it. So now you're pretty much in high school and things I would imagine are escalating, right?
0: Yeah. And it was a bummer because at the same time, this is a common misconception around mental health that I always try to point out. Mm-hmm. People think that, like, the longer something goes on, then the closer that the person gets to, you know, quote, rock bottom, and then they'll seek treatment. And it's like, I think a misunderstanding around that is leaving out the idea that, you know, my first couple years with OCD were really difficult because I didn't know, I wasn't good at OCD, but the longer I had OCD, the better I got at it. Hmm. And by better, I mean, I had established all of these different systems in my life, like workarounds for OCD. Mm -hmm. And I was, believe it or not, I was growing comfortable in my disorder, Like I was getting so good at dancing around these obstacles that OCD presented Mm -hmm. for me that I was actually afraid to change and get diagnosed and seek treatment and potentially not have OCD. Because then, you know, like if someone went to me and said, don't you want to touch your food before you eat it? Like be able to cook and eat with your hands? And I'd be like, heck no. I never want that in my life. Food is (laughs) disgusting. I'm doing it right, you know. I'm doing it the right way and everyone else is wrong. So it was kind of difficult in high school because I was – becoming more and more convinced that I was doing it the right way and everyone else was confused.
1: Yeah, and also I kind of, I'm not too surprised in some ways because, I mean, and tell me if, I'm, if I've got this right. It's a disease, and I know with eating disorders, for example, they, they seem to cling on tighter as time goes by. And so I'm not surprised that because you were relying on these coping mechanisms and, you know, this harm to yourself that it, it dug in even harder for you.
0: Yeah, I think the mentality is, um, like, well, I found what works for me, and why would I want to get rid of my coping mechanism? I mean, it's kind of like when you talk to your friends. um, I have some friends who drink, like, Mm -hmm. pretty much every day. And if you were to say to them, like, hey, maybe you should consider not drinking every day, they'd be like, well, drinking every day helps me feel less anxious Mm -hmm. and it helps me feel less like existential dread. So why the heck would I stop drinking? And it's like, well, it's not about that. It's about whether your coping mechanism is healthy or not. And that's mm-hmm. something that I wasn't considering at the time.
1: Right. You're so young. I mean, you see that, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's hard to
0: cut myself some slack looking back at my younger self because I feel I feel super old i mm-hmm. know there are people listening who are going to roll their eyes but no no, no. in no. a quarter century i feel like i didn't even get to really have a childhood you know
1: mm-hmm. yeah no, i know i couldn't i understand that um so do your friends did you have friends in high school
0: yeah i did and and what blew my mind is after this is like you know years later, this is post-college, you know, I'm out of treatment, I'm much more well-adjusted, I'm like actually a contributing member of human society. (laughs) And then I reach out to my friends from high school that I've known for like a decade and I'm like, hey, like did you guys know that I was going through all that? And I thought that I was just so good at hiding (laughs) it that they had no idea what I was experiencing. They're all like, oh yeah, we knew. We just never brought it up. Cause it was awkward. And I was like, oh my word, this is how people die.
1: Oh, mm. wow. It's interesting. Did you feel like it's a testament to how much they liked being with you and cared about you? That they didn't, didn't mind all those things and wanted to spend time with you? Or that they didn't go deep enough with you?
0: Um. I used to view it as the first thing. And over the last couple of years, I I like to think I've matured a little bit to realize that if you actually cared about someone like, you know, I got a message. I get lots of messages on Mm -hmm. social media about mental health stuff, and I am almost never equipped to help somebody in that exact moment. Mm -hmm. Um, But someone sent me a message and they were like, hey. Um, I have a very dear friend of mine who I know is self-harming and they refuse treatment. And um, so I actually called somewhere and told them about my friend and then they went to do an evaluation on him and they're recommending treatment and my friend is mad at me. And I'm always saying like, dude, that's a sign that you actually care about your friend beyond yourself. Mm -hmm. Like if you would rather have your loved one continue to live a full, healthy life, even if they're mad at you or hold a grudge against you for telling on them, tattling on them. If you don't mind that grudge, then you actually care about that person. And I think most of my friends, we were like surface level friends, but none of them actually cared about my well being. They would just be happy to see me if I happened to be at a party that they were at, you know?
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah. So were you drinking too? In high school, when did the abuse of like alcohol and drugs start?
0: No, I actually, believe it or not, I've never used alcohol or drugs in my entire life.
1: Oh, but you're a sobriety advocate. I got confused.
0: Yeah, it's <laughs> so when I grew up in the house that I grew up in, it was drugs and alcohol. Mm. So from pretty much right when I was born, I got to see like you know what alcohol does to somebody and how it changes the way they speak, the way they behave. So from day one, I was like, there's no way I'm putting any of this stuff into my body, mm-hmm. but I've grown up around it my entire life. So, and even I'm in a metal band called Prison and we tour <laughs> for half the year when the world doesn't shut down. <laughs> and when I'm on tour, we play venues that serve alcohol. So I am around alcohol almost every single day against my will. And it's a big reason why I am such an advocate for sobriety. Mm -hmm. Most people look at me and they're like, oh, if you've never tried drugs or alcohol, you don't get it. And I'm like, dude, if you didn't grow up in my home, you don't get it. Mm -hmm. Like I've seen the other side of drugs and alcohol. And I think a lot of people like to imagine that they're different and that drugs and alcohol don't affect them the same way that they affect other people. Mm -hmm. Um, I know everyone has their own perspective, but I have learned vicariously through the people around me uh, to stay sober.
1: Yeah, that's a powerful message. Um, Like nothing can beat that message if you've been steeped in it and you don't want it. Um, So what about your diagnoses and and getting help for them and treatment how have you because in your bio you did talk about um bipolar disorder OCD and schizophrenia of course there's depression and so how do you how do you take care of yourself now that you're older well the answer
0: has changed over the years so In high school, I had to start attending mandatory counseling and I started um, trying medication. Took me ages, like years, to find uh, the right mix of medications. Mm -hmm.
1: Um, I I hear about that. That's that it can be really. Yeah. it's, It's, I mean, everyone is so different. Our brains are so different and all of the formulas are different for each of us. So it must have been, that must have been frustrating.
0: Yeah. It was. And it was really frustrating too, because I, you know, coming into the pharmaceutical realm as someone who is clean and sober, yes, I was very conflicted about it. But I, literally, I genuinely felt as if I was going to die. Um, I was going to end my own life if I didn't do something. Mm -hmm. So it was like a last ditch survival thing. Like, yes, I'll try this medicine. Yes, I'll try this one, and some. Uh, made me not able to sleep for weeks at a time. Some made me sleep all day long. Mm-hmm. Uh, on this one medication, I gained so much weight, mm-hmm. I can't even <laughs> describe to you how much I was literally 50 pounds heavier than I am right now. Mm-hmm. And, and I was, you know, 18 years old, mm-hmm. 50 pounds heavier than I am at 28. And yeah, it was really challenging to get to a point where I was on the right mix of medications. I was seeing the right therapist, not just any therapist, but one that really connected with me and supported me and understood me. Um, How long did it take to find that person? Well, I was really fortunate, actually. I only went to a couple therapists Mm -hmm. that I was like, Oh, I'm never seeing this person again. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, I would say, pr- I mean, it's not uncommon for someone to see much more than five, but I would say that I probably saw five mm-hmm. that I was just totally like, how soon can you get me out of this room? <laughs> um, and then I met this one woman and it's a shame because I don't remember her name,
2: mm-hmm.
0: um, but I hope that she knows wherever she is that she's impacted my life so much because she was by far the most helpful therapist that I've had. And I stayed with her as long as possible.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's interesting. You don't remember her name.
0: Well, I actually, so little known fact, fun fact, um, (laughs) I have pretty severe memory loss from Ah. um, being on a very severe, um, high dosage of many medications at the same time Um, it caused a couple permanent side effects one is um, some pretty pronounced memory loss and the other is called tardive dyskinesia um, which you can picture kind of like Tourette's only it's mainly the movements it's Mm -hmm. not so much the sounds
1: interesting
0: Yeah, so as a result, I feel so bad because I forgot like 80% of my whole life. And unfortunately, her name was part of that 80%. But her impact on me is part of the 20% that I still
1: remember. I bet you she knows the work you're doing. I bet you she does.
0: Oh, I hope so. It'd make me so happy. Like All I want her to do is just stumble across like an article about Cope Notes or something and be like, I helped that kid. I'm like, yes, you deserve all the credit for this.
1: And I was going to say, I was going to ask you this question, which when when the medicine formulas were so challenging and when it was really hard to feel good and know whether this was going to help you, plus being against any um, any kind of assistance from a substance, you know, that in your head too, how you stuck to it and made yourself continue. And I think is the answer because you knew the other choice was that you would die if you didn't.
0: Yes, I. It, there was definitely a lot of fear involved. Like it was not, I, I didn't wake up one day and said, I'm going to get better hmm. and just like be super noble. Um, but I, I also think a big part of it was the fact that when I tried to deviate from my medication, um, it got way worse. Like I had some very, very um, scary very dangerous experiences on days where I tried skipping my medication. Um. Um, And those were so I had such a, a severe reaction that I was just like, I would rather gain 50 pounds and never sleep Uh than experience even a moment of what those days were like. And I think I I've had a few relapses in my life and it's very difficult to describe um what it's like to slip back into something that you thought you were trading out of mm. and that feeling is you know you'd pay a hundred billion dollars to never feel that way again you know
1: yes I could imagine that do you have um do you have anger toward your family of origin and and you know are you how do you navigate the day to day of advocacy, which we'll talk about in a minute, and putting this story out there and helping people, and and this healthy place that you are in with the pain of what you suffered.
0: Uh, when you said, "Do you have?" I thought you were going to ask, "Do you have a hundred billion dollars?" <laughs> right I said that. <laughs> Because after I said that, you were like, "Do you have?" And I was like, "Wow, watch her ask me." Um, <laughs> no, I don't. No, no. The um, the anger thing is an interesting idea. For a long time, I harbored um, a lot of resentment towards my family, towards uh, my friends, mm-hmm. the people I considered to be my friends, um, and also like a lot of big enemies right like I was like oh big pharma and oh capitalism and oh (laughs) the American political system you know I was like angry at everything Mm -hmm. and honestly it has waned my anger has given way to kind of like a a sense of understanding now keep in mind when I talk about this I'm not saying You need to be best friends with your abusers. Mm -hmm. Um, But I am saying that I have sort of grown in a direction of coming to understand that this is going to sound super cliche, but hurt people, hurt people. And when I look at the people who have really caused damage in my life, I see very sad, frustrated, almost tortured individuals who just did not understand the harm that they were causing and I still maintain contact with my entire family we don't have the best relationship um but I'm not you know I did um the Richard's trauma process earlier this year in therapy Mm. and a big part of that was learning to sort of Forgive the people who have harmed you the best you can, so that you can move forward and not just carry that resentment with you forever. Mm-hmm. And I don't, you know, I'm not the kind of person who will say like, "Oh, I'm thankful that I experienced abuse." Uh, like I, you know, I'm maybe that's a chapter of recovery that exists, but I'm just when I look back at what I've experienced, I think, you know, it's it's really is a shame that I had to experience what I experienced but what a tremendous opportunity now for advocacy and for using this story leveraging it Mm -hmm. to help other people or else all of that pain was in vain like if I don't grow from this and then share it with other people to help other people avoid that same situation then I hurt for no purpose and I, I can't live with that you know
1: Mm hmm. I, I totally know what you're talking about. And I, I feel that uh, deeply. So how do you, how do you handle relationships? How are you in relationships? Are you able to relax with people who you feel emotionally intimate with? Uh,
0: I think in, in friendships, I'm super comfortable, um, I'm very much an open book, so, like, I'm talking to you. This is not my interview voice. This is not my interview (laughs) cadence. This Uh is how I'm speaking with you is how I speak with everybody I know. Uh Um, And that's just kind of, I think when you, I don't know, picture it like a leather watch band or something. Like, I'm only using this example because... Um, I recently tried on a watch with a leather band, and it was so uncomfortable. It was, like, <laughs> super stiff, and it, like, gripped my wrist. It felt terrible. Um, and the guy behind the counter was saying, oh, well, this is, like, genuine leather, and as you wear it, it, you know, loosens up. And I picture myself as that leather, where now I have been through so much in my life that I can't really afford, not really I can't afford to be guarded, but I've experienced so much trauma in so little time that I'm very comfortable. Like the last thing I'm worried about is like what somebody will think of me. Mm-hmm. Um, And so in friendships, it's super easy for me to be myself. In romantic relationships, I've actually been single for over six years. Mm. And a big part of that has been, um, I was in a sexually abusive relationship as an adult, Mm. um, pretty much like right when I turned 20 or 21. And the time since then, you know, for the first couple of years after that, I was in treatment and trying to kind of work through what that relationship was. And then after that, I realized that I actually enjoyed spending a couple of years being single and improving myself um, and kind of learning more about what I like and don't like. So into my 20s, I have just focused a lot more on being creative and hopefully there will be a time where I am in a relationship with the right person again. Mm -hmm. I don't think I'm afraid of a romantic relationship the way that I was like five years ago. But I will say that my bandwidth for a romantic relationship has been compromised by, like, running a company and playing in a band.
1: Yeah. Do you see yourself ever wanting a family?
0: So I've waffled on this, too. Like, when I I was really young, I really wanted a family. And then I went through a phase where I was like, I can never perpetuate what my parents, you know, Mm -hmm. like, I could never— put somebody else through that. And then I went through another phase after that that was like, I'm going to be the white knight. Like I'm going to be the (sighs) best father and the best husband just to show everybody. And now I'm kind of just after all of that big roller coaster around families, I'm like very neutral about it. I would love to have a family one day, but I am not, if I do have a family, it's not going to be to like, you know, break any, big cycle or to show everybody who I can be. It's just going to be like, because it's the healthy right decision for me. You know, Mm -hmm. I think the chip on my shoulder has shrunk and shrunk over the years.
1: Mm. Yeah. Well, yeah, that's great. Um, So you, when did you found Cope Notes? And, And now we'll talk a little bit about becoming a very public, very public advocate, really in the mix. And, and really uh, letting everyone know about your history and what you've experienced. So when did, you, when did you really get on the road with this?
0: So I started Cope Notes in 2018. So almost three years ago, it was early 2018. But I started doing advocacy in 2011. Mm-hmm.
1: And the Cope Notes, what inspired you to do that? And, and maybe you can talk a little bit about uh, what Cope Notes is for anyone who hasn't seen it yet.
0: Yeah. So if you're in a sentence, if you haven't heard of Cope Notes, uh, which I hope you haven't, I hope this is your first impression. (laughs) Um, Cope Notes uses daily text messages to improve mental and emotional health. So if you have a brain and a cell phone, you might enjoy it. And um, I honestly created it because I was having issues with a lot of other mental health resources that I was using. Like there are a lot of crisis resources, but I'm not always in crisis. And then there are a lot of resources that you can schedule out, but because I was on tour, I never knew what time I would be in uh, available for a phone call or a a FaceTime call or something. Mm -hmm. So, and even there were a lot of apps that I knew that, you know, once I downloaded the app, they would sell my data to some,
1: you know, pharmaceutical
0: company who would market to me. And I just, I had so many different issues with like modern mental health solutions So I wanted to make something that checked all those boxes. But ultimately, I wanted to create something that could focus on incremental growth. Like my whole life, I kept trying to find like the one big thing that would change me. (laughs) And over time, I realized it's not one big thing. It's a bunch of little teeny tiny microscopic things. Over the course of weeks and months and years that actually changed my personality for the better. Mm -hmm. So I wanted to make a tool that could do that with you, but a tool that you wouldn't have to reach out to to start the conversation. Like I wanted Cope Notes to, to take that first step every day.
1: Yeah. And, and you don't have to do the work because that is sort of in keeping with that idea that sometimes when we're hurting the most or suffering, we don't know how to ask for help or we don't want to have to do the work of asking for help. We just want the help.
0: Dude. And I, I do want to clarify this. I know this isn't how you meant it, but I want listeners to know Cope Notes does not do the work for you. Mm-hmm. There is no magical tool out there that will make you better. You have to work on yourself. Mm-hmm. Cope Notes does do the work of taking the first step every day. Mm-hmm. We do reach out. We do start the conversation. We do keep up that consistency. But ultimately, nothing outside of you is going to change what's inside of you.
1: Yes. And I I got this this little data from your website, which is that contrary to popular belief, it can take up to 254 days for a new habit to take root so that cope notes helps to consistently interrupt those patterns. Right.
0: Yeah. We, you know, everyone goes around thinking that like, you know, if I do something 21 days in a row, that it'll be like the Bible to me, like I'll just swear by it. And Mm -hmm. it takes four. Ever for the neural pathways in your brain to start defaulting to new paths. I mean, think about a highway near Mm -hmm. where you live or a freeway. How long does it take the construction crew to reroute traffic? (laughs) You know, it takes months after months after months of them like building even one new lane or changing the flow of traffic by 10 feet. And that's happening in your brain all the time. It's not the flip of a switch it's something that has to happen very slowly and gradually but after those months your brain you know if your brain used to default to the thought of uh oh, tomorrow's going to suck after 9 months of consistent practice your brain can think hey who knows what tomorrow's going to look like and that mm-hmm. is it might sound like a subtle difference but it makes all the difference in the world for an individual who doesn't have hope.
1: And it is a lot of work. And I think that's a really important point you you steered me toward, you know, you let me know because it, there is no quick fix.
0: Yeah, I always, I tell people like this, I say, um, people who think that they can do like one big thing um, for their mental health every once in a while, and that's fine. I try to, I, I use a few examples. I say, imagine eating like five pounds of salad once every six months.
1: (laughs) That's awesome. Like I I can't even think about it.
0: You're going to be miserable (laughs) and you're probably going to die because you can't poop for five and a half months. Like Mm. it's just for some reason, we don't think of mental health the way we think of other things. And if we just considered mental health in the same light that we consider physical health, for example, like you know, are you going to do 50,000 pushups in one day and then not work out for six years? Like, no, you know that that's not how it works. So I'm, <laughs> I'm just, when I do advocacy, I try to help people understand, like, we are all looking for the, you know, there's a huge market for like, get abs overnight or this quick <laughs> fat loss pill, but we, everyone knows that none of that stuff works. <laughs> we just throw money at it because we don't want to like admit to ourselves that, oh crap, I'm actually going to have to work on this. And it might be hard.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's also, it's making me think when we're talking about advocacy, because I know you also have the podcast. So if you want to uh, mention the podcast a little bit, and also this idea that I'm going to piggyback on that, like for the foreseeable future, you're going to be in this advocacy realm. And I, have you ever thought what it would be like not to be?
0: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I have to tell you this, um, this might be TMI, but I went on a date um, <laughs> this was maybe like a year or two ago mm. and this girl was awesome. She's super funny. Um, great big afro best sense of humor. She showed up on the first date with uh, like in sweatpants mm-hmm. and she was like, listen this if you don't <laughs> like me like this, you don't like me and I'm like, you are awesome." <laughs> so we had a great first couple of dates. And then uh, on the third date, or, or maybe it was the fourth date, uh, first few went well, and then one day we showed up to meet up again, and she was just totally cold to me. And I was really confused because I thought we had a great first couple of dates, So I was like, hey, what's the deal? And she said, I Googled you, and I just kind of read about a lot of your dirty laundry. You know, you you were raped, and you tell people about, you talk about suicide attempts and it's just so much like so many skeletons in your closet, so much baggage. Like I just don't really want anything to do with it. And I had this thought in my head where I was like, wow, should I not do advocacy? Like, Mm -hmm. am I scaring people away from me? And then I thought if I die tomorrow, will I wish that I hid who I was so that people would like me (laughs) (laughs) Or will I be relieved that I told the truth? Mm-hmm. And the answer is super clear to me.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's, I'm glad you shared that anecdote. That's uh, that really is an interesting thing that happened. And that you know, for you to have to deal with that reaction too, but also to kind of get clarity about yourself and what you want to do.
0: Yeah, I think we all we all focus on. You know, I really wanted that girl to like me so much, and afterwards, I was like you know, what has had a bigger net positive influence on the world? Like me opening up about what I've been through or her liking me, (laughs) you know, it's like not even a contest.
1: So then what kind of guests do you have? Tell me the name of your podcast and what kind of guests you like to have on.
0: Yeah. So the podcast is called the Cope Notes Podcast. And we, maybe my favorite part of the podcast is that we do not interview mental health professionals. So Uh you got to think like I run a mental health tech company. So all of my meetings are with like healthcare systems and governments and school districts, you know, like lots of suit and tie stuff. Uh But my life is, you know, I'm covered in tattoos. I listen to death metal all day. Um, Lots of my friends like skate and are artists. Uh And so... I purposely interview people who do not have a voice in the mental health conversation traditionally. Like I'll interview a janitor or a nanny or a pastor or, you know, a a sound guy for a touring band or a barber. Like people, I love interviewing everyday people that, you know, we might look at these people and assume that we know what they've been through. or We know what they feel like. Um, But some of the conversations that we've had on the show have really helped people understand that, like, if someone looks different than you or if they have a different line of work than you, um, that you would be surprised to know just how similar you are.
1: Mm -hmm. Yes, I love that. I spoke to a a guest who's coming on in a couple of weeks, and she is actually a sex coach. And she says she stopped having sex coaches on because it was always (laughs) sort of the same thing. So now she has regular people on. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So that kind of reminded me of that. Very different, but similar. Um, (laughs) So before I ask you to send listeners to your links and where they can find you, what is something you really want people to know about mental illness?
0: Ooh, I like this prompt. Um,
1: (laughs) I'm glad.
0: Yeah. Let me, let me try to put it succinctly. Um, Mental illness is not what you should be focusing on, probably. Mental health is what you should place your focus on. And I want to make this clarification. Basically, mental illness is when your mental health degrades to the point of being disruptive in your daily life. And there are a lot of people who say, you know, I don't have a diagnosis, so I don't have to worry about mental health like that you know, that's more for like, oh, my my cousin needs to listen to this or my coworker really needs to listen to this. And I would equate it to, oh, I'm gonna use another analogy, I'll say this. Um, imagine saying, well, I don't have any cavities, so I don't have to brush my teeth. <laughs> like you wouldn't say that. So I just want to clarify to people like, you know, when you brush your teeth, you're not thinking about cavities, you're thinking about your teeth. Mm-hmm. So when you are going about your daily life, and you feel a little bit of anxiety, a little bit of depression, you feel uh, guilty or lonely, whatever it is, I don't want you to think, well, that's not a real feeling because I'm not diagnosed with anything. Like stop excluding yourself from maybe the most important conversation you will ever have in your entire life. Like you've listened to 40 something minutes of a podcast because this was interesting to you in some way. And it's interesting to you because you have a brain and you have felt some of these feelings before. So please don't discount them. You don't need a diagnosis to prioritize your mental health. It's something that you should be doing every single day, just like you don't need a cavity in order to brush your teeth.
1: Hmm, That is a great analogy. You are really good with the analogies. Thank Um, you so much. (laughs) As a writer, I'm always trying to think about it. And I always feel so shy about using them, but you're very good at them. Um, I appreciate it. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. So where can people find you? You know, where I will definitely link in the show notes and on my website, but where would you like people to find you?
0: Uh, Let's see. So um, if you go to copenotes.com, you will find everything you need. There's the podcast. You can get uh, subscriptions on there. There's a contact form if you need to get in touch with me. And then, um, let's see, I have a TEDx Talk, so if you are a TEDx Talk listener, um, you can just go to YouTube and type in Johnny Crowder. I hope it will pop up. Mm-hmm. And then, if you're a social media kind of person, I am on LinkedIn, I am on Facebook, I don't believe in Twitter, um, and then I am on Instagram. Uh, my personal account is at Johnny Crowder loves you, because I do. <laughs>
1: Okay, great, um, Johnny. Thank you so much for for being my guest and for having this conversation with me. I'm really so happy we were able to talk.
0: Absolutely, this was honestly. I, I gotta say this before we stop recording. This has felt so appropriately paced. Like my entire 2020 has felt super fast or super slow, and the last. 45 minutes have felt (laughs) like they took 45 minutes and that's such a refreshing feeling.
1: That's like the biggest compliment for 2020. (laughs) And for me, thank you.
0: I hope it felt that way for listeners too. I hope people are listening going like, yeah, this really did feel like 45 minutes.
1: (laughs) All right. Well, thank you so much. I really am so glad we met. Thank you for listening to And Then Everything Changed. For more on this episode, photos, and other episodes you might like, please visit ATECpodcast.com. You can connect with me and learn more about episodes on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram also. Just search for my name, Ronit Plank, R-O-N-I-T-P-L-A-N-K, and you will find all the updates. If you like this podcast, please remember to subscribe and also rate and review so other people can find it. Thank you so much for listening.